through Zen, I've learned over the years, it's good to have a beginner's mind. It goes back to Cage. It's like, I don't have any answers. I don't know. I'll try everything just to make, or anything just to make the project work. print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf, and I release weekly episodes with people around the world who share our love of printmaking. So if you like what we do, please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference. Or just tell a fellow print friend about the podcast and they can enjoy it too. We also have a Patreon page where supporters join at tiers that start at just a dollar a month, and that really helps us to keep bringing you printmaking content every week. You can also get thank yous like exclusive merchandise, as well as access to our bonus content, shop talk with our editor, Timothy Pauschak, quick and dirty tips and tricks with our guests about materials, processes, business advice, and general studio nonsense. So if that sounds like something you're interested in, you can check out the link in the show notes and sign up to hear Tim's chat with today's guest. And if you want to save a little cash and still support the show, you can now sign up for a yearly subscription and receive 15% off that tier price. Printmaking forever, shun the non-believers. This episode of Hello Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your practice since 1997. If you're following along on Instagram, and we really recommend that you do, you'll no doubt seen the newest initiative in the print world, Speedball's Print Posse. Working with artists like Carlos Hernandez and Tom Huck, they have created a brand new line of custom printing inks and papers to push your practice even further. So head on over to Speedball's Print Posse shop at speedballart.com to find out where you can pick up a can of your new favorite color. There's a link in the show notes. My guest this week is Paul Maloney, a master printer and professor at Pacific Northwest College of Art. We'll talk about his familial ties to printmaking, big names like Solowit, John Cage, and Kathan Brown, just to name a few, traveling around the world through printmaking, weathering the storms of recession, and giving back to the community to which you belong. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to wipe a plate with Paul Maloney. Hi, Paul. How's it going? Hey, Miranda. It's going well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm really honored. Yeah, I'm really excited to get a chance to chat with you a bit in depth. You know, we've actually had a chance to meet briefly before in Seattle when you were there for uh, Sando Burke's um, exhibition at the Copland Del Rio Gallery of the American Procession. Um, but of course, at an opening, it's always crazy. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. And then I think we met... Um, at a conference once yeah. or twice, maybe in in Kansas, uh, you know, no, in Texas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, We've kind of been been in the printmaking orbit together for a while, for sure. But I'm really looking forward to actually getting to have an in-depth conversation with you. Um, so before we get started on some of the details, um, can you just give yourself a little introduction for everyone listening and say who you are, and where you are, and what you do. Sure. Um, well, I, my name is Paul Maloney, and I'm cur- currently in Portland in our studio of Maloney Printing. Um, 
and we moved here about mm, a month or two before COVID hit, originally from San Francisco. I say we because um, I've been doing this for many years in many different iterations, and I started Malawi Printing in San Francisco in about 2010. And was named after my grandfather's commercial printing business in the early 1900s that he had in Minneapolis. But I um, was working with a former student of mine, Harry Schneider, and we decided to become business partners. And we expanded and pulled up stakes from San Francisco. Not entirely. We still have a, a little letterpress studio there. And we moved to a large 5,000 square foot space in Portland's Pearl District in the mm. North. Um, so that's what we do is yeah. we publish prints uh, and we do contract printing and we do workshops and outreach and community engagement, all that, uh, like with everybody else, kind of slowed down and came to a halt during COVID, but we're super excited to be doing it again and expanding. But our main thing is fine art print publishing, and by that, within that realm, we do all kinds of uh, we have all kinds of different media. We do. I'm primarily an etcher. We do a lot of photogravure etchings. We do letterpress, screen printing. We have a big old school Dufa offset press where we do on which we do monotypes. And, Woodcuts and um, off offset printing. You know, not high-speed offset printing. It's 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 manual, manually inked and run, and um, we do a lot of that. So we work with all kinds of artists, a lot of tattoo artists, a lot of emerging artists, a lot of well-established artists, and we do we try to engage with uh, younger people, our interns and students, and we offer our presses up for social justice print projects that um, revolve around, you know, broadsides and wheat pasting and all that. Excellent. Well, I definitely want to talk more a lot about some of those things that you mentioned a little bit later on in our chat here. But if we could back up a little bit and could you let people know where you grew up and what role art played in your life? And also, I'm fascinated by this idea that your grandfather had early 1900s uh, printing business as well. That sounds like a really interesting connection. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I grew up in a small town in southern Idaho called Twin Falls, and um, my father was a newspaper publisher there. He owned a daily newspaper called the Times News. But my, my family was all from, uh, they, were, they were from uh, Minneapolis and Lesur, Minnesota. They moved my father moved the family to Twin Falls when he bought the paper and when I was just seven months old. So I guess I always had, you know, when my grandfather was, was a printer, so I had the graphic arts in my blood. I had ink flowing through my blood through my grandfather very well. He started Maloney Printing as uh, he was a commercial lithographer yeah, in the early 1900s, probably up until the time of the Depression. And he was a painter, so, you know, I grew up in a household that wasn't really, I, I wouldn't say art was a big part of uh, what we knew and, and everything. I came into 
the graphic arts through photography. I became interested in journalism, photojournalism. My brother was a photographer. My, you know, my father ran the newspaper, so that kind of just, uh, just kind of fell into place. And I, I studied photography, and um, I didn't get into printing until a little bit later in life, when, uh, later in my twenties. As you said, you had this growing up experience, which I think is a little bit unusual for people in that you were around printmaking and you knew what it was. You know, I, I've interviewed, I think at this point, over a hundred people for this podcast. And usually the story goes, I like to draw, I like to paint. And then at one point, I suddenly saw a printing press and a light bulb turned on, you know, and so they have this kind of narrative of like, wow, what is this? But for you, it sounds like it was just a already sort of a part of your world growing up. I'm curious to know, did you think that you were going to sort of follow in your father and grandfather's footsteps and be in printmaking? My father, yeah. I, like I said, I didn't know that much about my grandfather. He, mm. um, I, I don't know exactly what happened, but um, I do know that he went out of business over a labor dispute and he was, um, he was beaten up by some labor organizers and he almost died and I don't think he... He, he 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 almost didn't survive, and he never really went back to work after that. And he lost the business, and then my father supported him uh, for, for the rest of his life. And so it was one of those things that was just, you know sort of ugly part of American history that a lot of families went through and never really talked about again. And so, um, but no, I, I I grew up in the press room. I used to go and see my dad and. It was just a small town, you know, daily newspaper was, but it was the second largest daily in the state. So it was a pretty big deal. And, and we, I just, I remember the smell of the ink and going into the warehouse with all the rolls of newsprint stacked up, waiting to go to the presses and they like all the way to the ceiling and we'd climb up and we'd go down these tunnels and it was really scary. And, and I, I just loved all the presses, but no, I never thought I would really get into print making I um, that came later when I went to Japan um, but I I knew I wanted to be a, a photojournalist I was re I really loved photography and that's just what I wanted to do but that changed later on in life <laughs> yeah that's interesting because yeah I when I was growing up I also was really interested in journalism and particularly photojournalism as well and you know mm -hmm. I would buy books on it and check out books from the library and that kind of power of being somewhere and and documenting what's happening and the power of an image I think was really instilled in me during that time and you know now obviously being in the quote-unquote fine arts that's the power of an image has kind of a bit of a different meaning but I think it really planted a seed of understanding that images do things that words don't and that these are significant and can be powerful things. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I was growing up and I was, um, uh, well, very young when the Vietnam war was going on and that that's when, yeah, that, that's when that all kind of shifted and just the, the allure of get a job and go around the world and travel and photograph. This was, was really, really great. And then, I went to uh, University of Missouri f uh, for journalism school, and um, they had a really great exchange program with a university in Tokyo. So I, I only lasted two semesters my freshman year. My, <laughs> the next year I went off to Tokyo um, 
not sure not sure what I would end up doing and um, studied at a university there and after two semesters uh, decided to take a break and I didn't I didn't come back for a long time <laughs> so yeah. I was at that point exposed to Japanese culture which had a, has had a grip on me ever since and I've spent a lot of my life in Japan and uh, and when I came back to America I was just bouncing around and there was a group of Japanese I was living in Williamsburg Brooklyn and this was long before it was you know even a twinkle in the uh, hipsters eyes <laughs> like the mid 80s and there were uh, Saul Lewitt had a, a screen printing um, studio his uh, his screen printer was named Joe Watanabe and he had a whole crew of Japanese kids working for him expatriates and uh, I just fell in with them because I knew so many Japanese people and uh, I started working at Saul Lewitt's studio <laughs> and um, eventually I, I didn't last in New York too long and then as I was leaving I'm like working for Joe who was like an amazing printer but also he handled all of Saul Lewitt's wall projects too so um, but every day at lunch they would cook pasta and they would drink beer. It was just like, it was like old school. So, I mean, back in the day when it was really relaxed and not stressful. <laughs> I'm on my, I go back to San Francisco where I had spent a lot of time and I wanted to go to the art Institute there. And, um, they were just starting an etch, an etching studio in the screen printing studio. And the woman, I can't remember her name. She was, she was in head. She was in charge of his etchings, and she said, "Well, when you go to San Francisco, you, you should check out Crown Point Press." And uh, I said, "Cool, uh, I'll do that." And so I got to San Francisco and sort of forgot about it. And I was bouncing around and starting to do my own woodblock prints and stuff by then, and got really enthusiastic about Munakata and you know the contemporary, well, the folk art movement in Japan, and, and especially Munakata. I started making large-scale woodcuts and stuff. But one day I was driving and listening to the radio, and it was uh, the Berkeley station, KPFA, I guess it is, right? But And John Cage is on the, on the radio, right, live. Mm -hmm. And they're asking him, well, what are you doing in town? And he said, well, I'm at Crown Point Press right now, and I'm working on some etchings there because he used to go there every year. And I'm like, whoa, cool. I'm going to go to Crown Point Press. <laughs> Next day I went. And I, I cold called and I knocked on the door and uh, Catherine Brown was there. She let me in and I said, I'm interested in um, interning for you or working. I'll work for free. I'll sweep the floors. I don't know. Anything. I worked for Saul Lewitt and I'm starting to get interested in this stuff. And she's like, oh, well. We're we're looking for a printer right now, and I I wouldn't have you sweep the floors for nothing, but you can apply for the job. And she started showing me around, and she said, "By the way, John Cage is here right now." And I go, "Oh, really? I didn't know that." <laughs> and the studios were big, and this was these are the old studios on Folsom. Subsequently, like um, uh, three weeks after that, were destroyed by the. 89 earthquake but she opens the door and there's john cage you know setting news newspapers on fire and running them through the press and i'm like oh my god and they hired me about a week later <laughs> oh my gosh and i became a master printer there wow. and I, I ended up working with john twice before he passed away that's, yeah that's beautiful story i and i love hearing from someone who kind of has worked 
firsthand with John on and, you know, was there seeing the, the fire prints. Cause I feel like they're, they're such a, um, such an icon in the history of contemporary printmaking. Um, Tim and I were just talking the other night that if you're ever hearing a lecture on contemporary printmaking, it's, you just, it's like, um, you could play like a drink when they mention, uh, <laughs> Uh, John Cage's fireprints, but I think it just speaks to, you know, really what a presence that they, that they have and, and, you know, his incredible mind in the way he, everything he approached, it, it was never, never straightforward. You know, it always was, how can I think about this in a way that no one else has thought about it before? So. Absolutely. But, I mean, he made a in- huge impact on everybody and my life. And so I'd been working there for about a year and then, um, he used to come every January, so Catherine put me in charge of the next project. It was my very first project I was going to lead. And she said, I want you to work with John Cage. And I'm like, oh, my God, okay. I'm so excited. She said, here's his number. You have to call him and see you know, what kind of papers he wants to and what you need to do to get ready and stuff. So it's like, you know, his number, you know, 212, whatever it was. And, of course, this is long before any of the stuff we have now, but – he was he his whole thing in life is he always picked up the phone. He didn't have uh he didn't have an answering machine. Mm. And in fact he never reco- listened to recorded music or any recorded thing at all. So I call him and he picks up and I'm like, Oh my god. Anyway, that's what my first project was with we were continued the fire burning prints. We it was called Smoke Weather or Stone Weather and yeah, we would light the newsprint on fire and the paper was damp and you would drop it on there and run it through the press and uh and the paper would be scorched and then on top of that we made printed a bunch of beautiful etchings he was amazing i don't know where i I hadn't met him you know i mean at such a young age and not really knowing anything about the world or zen i had been to japan but i didn't absorb a lot of the stuff that he had to teach me yeah you had mentioned that that printmaking that connection, your personal connection with it formed in Japan. And you spoke to it a little bit, but I'm wondering if you could dive in just a bit more and sort of say, you know, exactly how, you know, it kind of maybe captured you within that context. Um, whereas obviously you'd seen it before, been exposed to it in this, in the commercial setting through your father, but was it, you know, sort of seeing the the Japanese tradition, or was it maybe that you were just in a place in your life where you were open to be taken in by something? Oh, yeah, I was open to be taken in. You know, I was living in Tokyo, and I was like 22, and uh, Tokyo back then was amazing. Well, it still is, but it was very, it, it was relatively cheap to live there. You wouldn't think it was, but I don't know. I, I, I didn't come into ukiyo-e prints until later in life uh, when I started studying them more closely. And so it wasn't it wasn't the ukiyo-e mm. stuff that turned on. It was more uh, the Buddhist um, sculpture and Zen culture. And, and I was really influenced by German expressionism. And I kind of see that as a direct link to not a, I don't know if it's direct link, but not dissimilar from Shiko Munakata, who sure. I just kind of love, I fell in love with his black and white work and the hand painted stuff, and so I just got some gouges and some wood, and I started sort of emulating his style, and um, I, I just I just loved all that all that. I didn't, 
you know, I didn't um, have formal training at all until I uh, until I went to Crown Point and then learned etching. You know, and at Crown Point Press, that's that's kind of the way they like it. They 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 hired me because I was raw and didn't know what I was doing, so they were able to teach me. Yes, <laughs> and that's kind of the way they worked back then, and and still do. And then, so how many years were you at Crown Point? Mm, not many. I think three or four, uh, maybe three. When the recession hit in, was it 92 or whatever, mm-hmm. there were printers there at the time. It was really rocking, you know. It was really fun. Um, and we moved into the new building after the earthquake where they are now across from the museum uh, in, in San Francisco, across the street from the Museum of Modern Art. Uh-huh. And then, but the the recession hit, and Catherine had to uh, lay off quite a few of us, and uh, I didn't make the cut. And and then that's when I went back to Japan. I had been working with Shoichi Ida at Crown Point Press, who's a great artist from Kyoto, who's passed away a long time ago. But he said, "Come to come to Kyoto, come to Japan, and and work for me." So I ended up I pulled up stakes and went to Nara, where and worked at a small studio called Kurumaki Kobo that was doing all of Ida's printing at the time. So I just fell into that. And yeah, so I I was at Crown Point just a few brief years. Yeah, I just feel like um, what you're describing of working in a little studio in Nara, I I just feel like that's just such, sounds like such a dream. I don't know. Nara is just such an incredible city. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't feel real at least you know i've only been there as a tourist but um you know the the deer the temples the rain like it's just it's just in in, an amazing place and so the idea yeah that you could could sort of stay there and do work and work on prints i'm just like oh my gosh (laughs) like that sounds like a dream (laughs) i know it was amazing it was outside the city of nara um up the way a little bit near kashihara jingu which is a huge uh, shinto shrine and a very sacred place and then there was a burial mound just outside of this the studio um a wooded area that was i don't know it must have been it, uh, it was the it was the tomb of empress saime and i i think it might have been i don't remember now but ninth or eighth century uh, so you're just I, in the midst of yeah naro was the that that was where all of that really started that's where buddhism first came because from China and Korea, because Nara was considered the terminus of the Silk Road, mm-hmm. um, which a lot of people don't realize. So it, that's when Buddhism came there in um, what the ninth or eighth century, and and all all the historians out there uh, don't don't get on my case. I'm I I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, what you're saying is yeah, it's the it, it's really the history and culture there is so beautiful and it, the, the mana is the, the energy is so amazing. And I, I just loved it. So I ended up working there. I came back I got my visa straightened out and then I dragged my then girlfriend, now wife Kate back with me. And we ended up caretaking a Zen temple in the mountains oh of Nara, uh, which is a, it was a 16th century temple and had become fallen on hard times and no longer had monks, but it, it was up in the woods and had a beautiful, beautiful shri- uh, altar room and was connected to Daitokuji, a very famous, big, huge Zen temple in Kyoto where Gary Snyder and every 
uh, anyway, we I set up a little studio there and I called it Tokugenji Press and we were there for like nine years in the 90s, just hanging out in the mountains of Nara and trying to survive. Oh my <laughs> care- gosh, that's so beautiful. <laughs> so after Japan, what came next? Was that Hawaii? Because I know you spent some time there as well. Yeah, uh, so we finally needed to move on from Japan because... Um, I mean, living living in the mountains in a temple was re- really awesome. Um, but um, I wake up one morning thinking my career has kind of stalled. <laughs> you know? I'm not old. Uh, I'm not old enough to uh, die in a temple. I'm not. So we need to get out of here. And we went to. Uh, we, my wife has family in in Maui, so it, it was. Um, it was the next best stop without having to come back to the mainland, which would have been complete culture shock, you know, after that. So I ended up, um, we were on Maui for a number of years where we, um, there's a small art center called uh, Hui Noe Ao, uh, which is a great uh, art center that's been around for like 70 years. And um, I had I had taught some workshops there, went back and forth from Japan and one of the board members asked me to come back and help them sort of kick the print studio into a little bit of higher gear. So I started a residency and publishing program there. And that was that was really great. We worked with a lot of great artists there who we invited to come. And it was it was beautiful because, you know, when you're trying to invite artists to come and, and work with you to publish prints, uh, Maui's a pretty good draw. You know? so, yeah, I bet, <laughs> the, yeah. <laughs> This upcountry Maui, just just below Makawao and on the North Shore, and a really beautiful old estate. And uh, so we worked with Judy Pfaff and Nicola Lopez and Joyce Kozloff and my friend Robert Kushner, who I've had done a lot of work with at Tokugenji Press, and uh, who are new to me, like Artemio Rodriguez came, and we did a really large print, and mm. Came and 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 it was the residency was funded by the Hawaii Community Foundation. So there, uh, for that there was uh, community programming too. They there were lectures, but also workshops. And Swoon worked with some local kids for about the high school kids for like two or three weeks and put together this big exhibition of and they they did uh, wood block portraits and she turned them onto that and then we we had a big exhibition at the exhibition space and it was really cool cannonball press uh martin and michael came out and worked with kids artemio worked with uh local students on a loteria project and uh yeah it was really 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 cool but then the other recession in 28 2008 you know kind of took that and we had to regroup and that that program just uh didn't survive unfortunately so you know hearing you you tell your story a bit in this sort of you know you were at crown point and then you had the the dot-com bubble and then you were in maui and you had the uh, housing bubble and then you know now we are here in 2021 just kind of coming out of uh the pandemic do you feel like kind of seeing this sort of ebbs and flows in a way kind of prepared you for like, okay, like something else is happening. I've seen this before. I know there's another side. 
to it. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I do. And it, um, I'm much older now. And my, I think I got that from my father because he lived through the depression. My, my grandfather went out of business and I don't know why. And I, I just, I think I learned that work ethic from my dad and that, um, that, op- that sense of optimism. Um, in 2008, he was a, about 90 years old and he was still, he was still working and still kicking and he was a financial guy, but his thing was, you know, when the recession hit, he was of the mind where you just have to go out and spend the money if you can, because it's all about, you know, the velocity of money that's going to get us back into Mm -hmm. back business. He was a, you know, he was a Roosevelt guy, an FDR guy, but Mm -hmm. so I got that from him. But what I really learned from Catherine Brown at Crown Point Press is, you know, I, uh, I'm so indebted to her. She, she was really like a second mother to me and to many of us who work for her. And I started there a week before the 1989 uh, earthquake in San Francisco. And the building was, it wasn't leveled, but it was condemned. And we had to get everything out of there in about three days. And um, the presses out the second story window and everything before the city came and red tagged it and to destroy it. Long story short, I was part of that. We we set up in a in a garage on Howard Street, and she kept things going. And then she dug up the money to buy this building at great risk, and we designed the studios. So I had I had her as a mentor, and we are all very lucky to have worked with her. She's a very optimistic woman, and throughout my life, whenever I needed some advice, I'd go to her. Uh, you know, and she always had good business advice. And um, after seeing what, yeah, after surviving the earthquake, after only working there a week, we were working on these giant L held prints. And I was, uh, Brian Shure, you know, who wrote the Shinkole book, who now is at Anderson Ranch, he and I were the only ones in the building because it struck about 5.15 and everybody split. And I'm sitting there at the desk. I'd literally only been working there a week. And this big speaker that they had up on the, on the bookshelf fell and slammed into this big Al Held print. I went, oh my God, we got to get out of here. But anyway, I'm going off on a tangent, but I've seen, I've seen a lot of ups and downs and thanks to people in my life, like, like Catherine and, and John Cage too, who, you know, he, such an optimist. It's, it's like, it's going to work out. And, yeah. um, and we made it through the pandem- pandemic, um, and I feel very lucky and privileged. We we are very privileged, at, you know. Being I myself being a white privileged male in this country, I I, I know that I am extremely lucky, and and that's and and that's why we try to give back to the community. But also, um, there was a lot of pain and suffering through this, and we just feel lucky that we survived it. You know, when so many other people went out of business and worse, so. I, I feel like I've I've just heard such wonderful things about Kathan and how you know people like her they really um, are such important figures in our world and and in printmaking and in you know the history of of keeping this technology this culture alive um, because I think you know Crown Point and the etchings that they produce and the standard to which it's raised what people I think think about when they think about etchings. It's I don't think it can be understated. So it's it's mm-hmm. just 
it's beautiful to, what I always hear too is just great stories about her. Like what you're saying is, you know, her, her optimism and her work ethic because, uh, it, I feel like it always just, I don't know. It inoculates me with a little bit of like, okay, like that's, it's going to be okay if you can just, if you can like have like an ounce of that in you, you know? She, she tells the story often. I'll just, I'll say briefly, but it's in, it's in the videos in her book and everything. She was in London studying etching and then she rescued this rusted old press outside the backyard of where she was renting an apartment and put it on a boat and shipped it, you know, through the Panama Canal to California. That was her first press, and it's still there. It the is? Pr- oh, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> she cleaned it up and she used it. Yeah, so, I mean, it, those, those, those things are important. Those the, We're standing on the shoulders of, uh, of the people who helped us here, and that's, I know that's a cliche, but it's true. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, it's absolutely true. I love to make sure that we have a chance maybe to talk about a bit of what you were saying about sort of like giving back and like using, you know, using a platform and, you know, utilizing the the privilege that, that you have, that people like you and I, you know, both have, um, you know, to find a way to kind of do something useful with it, to be of service with it. And I know that you spoke a little bit about how, your presses are used for social justice projects, for posters and broadsides and wheat paste ups. So maybe you can talk about some of the the recent projects that you've done um, that sort of falls under that umbrella. Yeah, well, as as much as I can, that's what I've been um, yearning for and striving for the past several years. And um, we've worked with high school youth in San Francisco um, at a place called Youth Art Exchange, and they have after-school classes for kids for free. So we worked on semester-long projects with um, high school students on um, projects that that involved letterpress and screen printing that they, that were important to them, gun violence and, and things like gentrification neighborhoods and so they would come up with ideas and we would just mentor them and help them do that and um and what else was as teaching at pacific northwest college of art in portland i was adjunct there and i teach from time to time trying to do my best to get my students involved in knowing that the press is really an important instrument in um keeping culture alive and keeping information going. And I always pontificate, there's that word again about, you know, if you own a press, that's that's powerful, right? And I always, and anyone who's heard me talk about this, if they're listening to this, they're going to say, oh, oh God, here he goes again. But you know, the printing press really changed so much in our history going going back forever and, and, and the American Revolution. And when you think about printmaking in Latin America and 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 just how in, that's how information got out there so when when armies took over when 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 a city was being taken over the presses were the first thing that were being destroyed just like the radio stations and the TV stations and now the internet so when the internet goes down we still have letter presses but specifically what you're asking we're I haven't done enough. That's the that's the thing. I've been it, it has been around workshops and 
just opening up the presses here in per- Portland from time to time when people want to, my students want to, you know, do posters and stuff. But with that in mind, we've we've started to raise money uh, uh, through this thing about the un- it's called the Undergrowth Educational Print Fund. What we're doing is we started an internship program. So we had some seed money last year, and um, we raised enough money to start a program where we put out an open call for printmakers to come to apply to be an intern. Right. So the idea is that. It's kind of like a, maybe a post-bac thing. If they have a BFA or an equivalent, they don't have, have had gone to school. If they didn't go to school, that's okay. But if they can show passion and equivalent learning and a passion to keep learning and maybe want to go on to get an MFA or start their own shop or go work for another shop or just have their own studio practice, we have the money to hire one person for nine months, the fall and spring semester. So it's like during their break year, perhaps. And we we um, we just started it, and we're finishing our first uh, six months. And we hired a wonderful intern who was selected out of many applicants. Um, Alejandra actually just hired her on as a full-time assistant. But long story short, what we're doing for, with this educational program is we're we're setting up internship programs to train printers, right? And we're just getting started. Hopefully, we'll, we're going to have another one, another open call soon. Uh, hopefully, we'll be able to have more than one intern a year. And then, but the next thing is we're going to uh, design a residency program in 2022 where um, BIPOC artists can apply with a project in mind around social justice and they will have studio space, access to the presses, access to exhibitions and even publishing for, uh, to, to get their work out in with social justice messaging. So we're really stoked about that. And we're, we've got a lot going on, um, in terms of just offering up our mentorship presses because yeah, as I said, I'm a privileged white male in this society. Uh, I own presses, and I uh, think that they should be used for whatever they can be used for in addition to the fine art publishing we're doing. So I don't know. I don't know if I can articulate it very well, but that's that's kind of that's that's my dream and the dream of my uh, business partner, Harry Schneider. And we're um, we're going to continue our own business. Uh, we have to keep the doors open. But through don- donations, through a fiscal sponsor, which are tax deductible, we can also kind of spread the wealth to people who are passionate about printmaking and want to keep working. So um, we teach them that we teach our interns a lot that they wouldn't normally learn in school. Let's just put it that way. That's the other goal. <laughs> Technically, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, they- I can definitely imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it reminds me what you're saying about, you know, teaching younger people things that they wouldn't learn in school. like. I was talking to um, a colleague of mine a couple of days ago, and we were just talking about um, a potential like project with printmaking, doing something like that. And one of the things she said was that uh, basically she's got she's twins, two seven year old boys, and she was saying that there's basically no art in public schools anymore. Um, right. And you know that was something that I hadn't really realized. I think in part having not even set foot on American soil in years now. Um, but I think also, you know, you know, not having kids, not really being kind of plugged into what's happening. And so I just sort of picture public school being my experience of public school, which is now 
20 years old, right? Right, right. Um, So it's like, yeah, it was great. We had a ceramic studio and, you know, we got to do lino cuts and, and she's just like, no, that's, that's gone um, for, for the most part. And, you know, really thinking about that in terms of how that really is going to affect this generation of, of kids growing up because some of my fondest, clearest memories of being in school were of being in the art studios there and, and being a really fucking weird kid that like no one really liked, but like right. my art teacher liked me, you know, right. my art teacher yeah. encouraged me and like that, that meant a lot. And it really made me think about how printmaking with its its communal nature, with its multiplicity nature, with its connection to politics and social justice, it really is such a beautiful vehicle for maybe supplementing some of that experience um, for the the young kids, the, the young people these days, because it it was so important to me and I know so important to so many people. And so it's wonderful to hear that that you're taking that on, and I hope that it's something that many of us who who have privilege, who have time, who have a press, um, which, as you say, is 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 power, um, maybe can think about taking on as well because it's yeah. so needed. Yeah, yeah, it is, and and there are a lot of great programs going on, and a lot of people are doing really good work and working really hard, and that in Portland and and the Bay Area and. Uh, our residency program is going to start at our studio in um, in San Francisco. We have a studio at the Minnesota Street Project uh, Studios in Dogpatch, and um, that's where we keep our two letter presses. So it's a small little studio, but um, perfect to uh, to get a start there. And um, yeah, I mean it's 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 necessary. It's uh, good work, but I do know. A lot of my former students have gone on to teach high school and community college and are really working. Equity is taught. Art is taught. I didn't mean to make disparaging comments about students not learning anything in school. They learn a lot in school. I just I just want to be clear. It's, um, you know, they get a good solid education in terms of uh, conceptual ideas, um, presentation, I, see, I just see from time to time that technical skills are somehow are sometimes lost a little bit in certain programs. Not lost, but there's only so much time. You have two years to get your degree, your MFA degree, and you can't learn everything. So we're sort of augmenting that because the interns I've worked with over the years, they 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 jump in and they start learning everything we we do and we put them to work doing the tax tasks that we do and we don't you know they're not tearing down paper for two months straight or sweeping the floors running out for coffee you know um it's it's really a well-rounded sort of education and i i've kind of been doing that for years but now it's it, it now we have the money to actually pay them so it's great yes <laughs> Yes. Yeah. And I think that that, um, you know, that 
dichotomy between sort of technical knowledge and theoretical knowledge and what you can write about versus what you can do and sort of practicality versus philosophy. You know, it's something that comes up a lot in the conversations that I have through the podcast. And I think it's something also that, um, you know, depends a lot on, you know, where people receive their education. You know, there, as we know, there are schools that are, you know, more technically minded or more theoretically minded. And it's, you know, it's always a really interesting one. And I think it's one that's particularly interesting within the field of printmaking because technical knowledge is so, um, wed to printmaking, uh, it, it really in a way that, you know, isn't maybe the case in other media. Um, you know, in order to make an image that looks, that, that reflects your intentions in a medium like etching, you need to know a fair few things, you know, just sort of technical knowledge to make that happen. So yeah, yeah. it's, it's a really interesting, um, topic for me. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a it's technical knowledge that connects us to uh, centuries of, of uh, makers and printmakers and artists. It's it's really it's really really rich, and uh, and it, you have to learn it. Otherwise, you can't make good work. And it it brings up the idea of craft, and that and craft is really coming back. You know, it was uh, it was just such a bad word for such a long time. Um, and I think especially the young people these days are really stoked to like learn how to do this stuff and, and analog printing and, and the photogravure process that we, the way we do it is all analog. And, um, it's really, really, it's, it's like, it just connects you with something deep and rich, <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> I, I do wonder about, and I don't know if this is too reductive of a way to speak about a whole generation, but the, uh, if there's something really rewarding for the quote-unquote digital natives to engage in an analog technology like printmaking, That's you know, um, to see that they can work on a physical matrix, a physical paper, and get something that you can hold in your hand, that you can hang on a wall, that you can give as a gift that's in the real world, if that really speaks to them. Yeah, I mean, that's it. I... I you articulated it much better than I've ever been, but that's, that's for sure. Um, I, I find that it's really, it's really great. Oh, that's such I, good news. I was, <laughs> I was, I started doing black and white, black and white darkroom photography again and doing large format work, eight by 10 negatives. And, um, I was stirring some developer a couple months ago in the darkroom and, I just remembered my uh, my professor um, Perkle Jones at the Art Institute in San Francisco, who had you know worked with Minor White and Ansel Adams and all, and he was already an old man when I met him, but he's probably younger than I am now. And I I just suddenly I remembered him saying, "Don't pour it all in at once. You have to slowly you know mix the powder into the warm water." And it's like. I hadn't thought of that in years and all this stuff comes back. It's kind of like, I, it, it, and he always talked about it as magic. You know, when the, when the image came up, he's like, Oh, it's so magical. And he'd, he had been doing it for years at that point, but he would yeah. still get excited when we you know when you see that latent image come up in the developer. And it's just that sort of excitement about the hands-on stuff that 
I learned from him and John Cage too, and and all the others I learned from. It was like, it's really great. And I think if 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 we can teach that way, the the, the students have that natural reaction anyway, because <clears throat> digital culture, you never get a chance to see an image appear on a, on a on photo paper in the in the developer. You, it's only something you see in black and white movies or some James right. Bond movies. Yes, <laughs> yes, spy movies definitely. Definitely. And and I think, yeah, the, the image appear in the developer or the final key plate revealing a finished image yep. when you lift up the paper. You know, I think that's there's yep. very kind of similar moments of the the reveal and the satisfaction of all the effort and the tweaking and the, you know, trying to get things just right. And then all of a sudden in this, as you say, magic, it yeah. there it appears. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the opposite is true too, because it can be a heartbreaking um, uh, failure, and uh, that's an important thing to have in your life too. Right? Yes. <laughs> the, that first proof, and you pull the paper off the plate, and the, pull the blankets back, and you pull it up, and you're like, "Oh my god, this really sucks." <laughs> <laughs> okay, we have to go back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But hey, there's what is it like? No risk without. No reward without risk, you know. If it was, if uh, if it was great every time, you know, all the great times wouldn't have meaning, right? <laughs> I feel like I'd love to, um, with the time we we have left, and I know this is like a huge question, so we might just have to have you have you back on if we don't have time to fully go into it. But I want to make sure that we've got a little bit of tape where I can ask you about. The collaborative process, because, you know, um, you've worked with some incredible artists. You got to, you know, get your feet wet with John Cage. So that's, you know, no pressure, just kind of starting out. Um, And maybe just some uh, words of wisdom for people out there who are interested in collaborative printmaking or starting publishing studios of their own of what is your process like when you go into creating something in a collaborative way with an artist? Do you have do you have a checklist that you run through? Do you kind of feel them out individually? What is that like for you as the collaborative printmaker? Oh, uh, yes, no check, no checklist. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I only uh, I I try. I learned a long time ago that I only work with people I really admire mm-hmm. and that I can hang out with for a week or so. I, my rule is I would never, I never work with people I, I haven't met and, uh, or I haven't, I never invite people to come that I haven't met. I broke that rule once. Uh, I invited Swoon to come to mm-hmm. my, to work, uh, to publish prints and she graciously accepted and, uh, I knew it was going to work out and it did. And I just wanted to work with her so, so badly. So, um, but we had never met, we'd only talked on the phone anyway. Um, I don't know. And it, the collaborative process, that's funny because going back to crown point press and, and my, uh, my mentor, um, Kathan, who I, I love, uh, that's the, the one sort of area that we probably don't see eye to eye on the way she has always run her shop is, uh, she doesn't consider a, a, a true collaboration. She considers it uh, that the printers are technicians, and and we were trained to just be technicians and try not to offer advice about 
anything that goes into the work aesthetically. Um, and um, if you know what I mean, it's kind yeah, of yeah. like liver the plates, we etch them, and we do we give all the advice and input on how to get the aqua tint just right, or whether the line's going to work and keep how the colors are going to work. But uh, I, when I branched off on my own, I found work, myself working much more collaboratively. Um, in other words, I bring a lot to the project in terms of my own, um, oh, my own aesthetics around paper because I've spent so much time in Japan and I worked with scroll mounting, so um, a scroll mounter. So a lot of the projects we do involve Asian papers, big ambitious joining of prints and backing them and making like these Sandow Burke prints that are 42 feet long. And we're working, we're just about to start a new etching of his. It's going to be uh, more, more than eight feet tall and, and six feet wide. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I'm sort of rambling. Um, I try to keep my ego out of it, but I maybe not that successful, you know, but I, I, uh, I depend a lot on the younger people around me to keep me in line, the interns and, and my business partner, Harry, who's now the head printer here. It's kind of, I, I defer to, um, I defer to the other people in the room because I don't have all the answers. It's it, I, through Zen I've learned over the years, it's good to have the beginner's mind and not, and it goes back to cage. It's like, I don't have any answers. I don't know. I'll try everything just to make or anything just to make the project work. This probably isn't answering your question, but the way I work is if I invite an artist to come in, we don't we don't um, premeditate anything at all. The artist says, "Well, do you want me to bring some drawings in or some, you know, we don't do reproductions of paintings, of course, or anything like that." And I'm like, "Yeah, you can bring some drawings, some ideas, or um, if we're working on an etching project, maybe we'll try to nail down the plate size. You know, maybe we can cut some 20 by 24 plates, but um, generally, I say, just come. The way we work is just just come and we'll figure it out. You know, and they're like, well, I know nothing about printmaking. And I said, well, that's that's sometimes way better. You know, yeah. I've, I've worked with a lot of people who had never done prints before. Um, I've worked with a lot of people who really knew their way around a print shop, like, you know, Saul LeWitt, you know, yeah. and uh, Robert Kushner and, and John, of course, and and I'm naming all the men, but and many, many great women, too, obviously, like Judy Pfaff and Joyce Kozlov. But it's really great if you don't premeditate it, if you have the luxury of time and a few days to just start throwing out ideas and making test plates. That's the way I like to go. Mm. Um it's hard to publish advice to print publishers um, who want to get into publishing. It's, um, it's like, I don't know, don't give up your day job. <laughs> it's a hard way to make money. So you yeah. have to, what was educational programming workshops, um, contract printing. we never take on contract jobs. We don't believe in though. We turn a lot down, but we, you have to make money doing contract work and we do, we have, huge letterpress capabilities now so we can we can uh do a lot of you know other stuff that people can afford and crank that out and also again high quality that we believe in but the price point that you know that people can afford so we have we publish prints that 
sell for $35,000 and we publish prints that sell for 150. I think that would be in my advice is not 150,000 but 150. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Broad capabilities don't put all your eggs in one basket. So, um I just I just love collaborating um and um bouncing ideas back and forth and we just try to give the artist everything she needs to get the vision worked out and um but monetarily it's it's really it, it's really hard sometimes because we work on pretty big ambitious projects and mm -hmm. the paper opera costs a lot of money as you know i really like a lot of what you were saying in there and i think um you know what you're saying about not taking on projects or people that you don't believe in is extremely significant because I think that particularly in the young, hungry, anxious days, uh, that's can really lead people astray. Um, you know, and I, I can speak as someone who's a, a maker and a collaborator in what I do with a podcast as well is that if you, if you get a sense kind of early on of like, I'm not sure this is going to be great. You're right. <laughs> you know, like trust that instinct. And I think the more you can kind of um, develop that muscle when you're doing something that involves the goodwill and good intentions of another person, you need to be able to rely on that and rely on your instinct of whether or not you're going to get that. So I think that that's really good, solid advice for collaborative printmaking and life <laughs> truly yeah for sure yeah it, it is um yeah i don't know i mean we were talking about the social justice aspect of printmaking and uh, the um the hands-on like analog how that inspires people but the other inspiring thing is is printmaking is all about community you know it's similar to ceramic ceramic artists that way too it's kind of like you know, back in the day, you, uh, you it took a whole village to fire a kiln, you know, literally. It takes a group of people to sometimes to own uh, an etching press or a, or a letter press. And that's what I would say to young people who are starting out is uh, to, um, as they say in Hawaii, hui up, start a collective, start a, start a community, you know. Um, get a few people together and buy a press and... Uh, it's hard. It's when you're young. It's kind of like starting a band. I imagine uh, tempers flare and um, <laughs> you know egos get in the way. But if you find a group, good a group of people that you can work with, that's that's really important, right? I mean, you, you need to you need to have. Uh, I think I think the community aspect is really important. It's not a solitary endeavor as uh, as it is for a painter or a poet or something like that. It's not for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think that, you know, as we, I don't know, kind of start to discover in this past decade and this upcoming decade, really what smartphones and technology in the internet have done to us as a species. Like I said, I, I feel like it's really good news that you're seeing people want to return to in-person community, in-person art making, that physical relationship with the world around you and the staying power of a physical work of art. You know, I think that the thing about 
Instagram is that it's so fleeting. It's that it's the hungry beast. It's like that. Well, it's like it's like a hungry ghost, right? Where that it's it's never satisfied. Um, you know, it's always new images, new images for one second, one second, one second, or not even that. But the power of focusing on one image and then having it exist in the physical world for you know for potentially hundreds and hundreds of years um, is because, of course, you know we have. We have prints that are that old. There's something really powerful about that. And I just think that it's, it's hopeful to hear that people are maybe discovering that and that we've got, you know, um, opportunities for them to do that in the world, like, like the ones you're providing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, yeah, it's really important. I got off Instagram about the time COVID hit, I just, I needed a break. And we, a lot of people say, you, you guys are really hard to find. Our website is, it could be better. And our Instagram hasn't had a post for over a year and a half. So I'm like, yeah, well, I kind of like it that way right now. It's not the yeah. best for business. But it's, um, there's, a, there's a certain amount of magic that um, we see in the studio that everything doesn't have to go out into the world. You know, if you're serious about wanting to do what we do, then Come visit us if you can. I think that's a great, a great way to kind of wrap up because I always, you know, ask where can people find you to my guests. And so you said, you know, through your website. 5112 Northwest 17th Street in Portland. Come knock on the door. You can, we'll show you around. Uh, the website's MalowneyPrinting.com and we'll try to update it a little better. But yeah. That um, sounds great. Go to our Malowney Printing Instagram if you want to see what we did um, up until December of 2019. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. I, I love it too because it, it's kind of a, a throwback to the beginning of your story of just walking up and knocking on the door of, uh, of Crown Point. So, you know, find yourself right. in Portland and go go knock on the door and and uh, make a real human connection I think that's that's a beautiful message yeah <laughs> but you can find us too at our San Francisco studio and it's it's at Minnesota Street Project in Dogpatch and um, the phone numbers on the website maybe I don't know just give it shoot us an email and if you're in San Francisco or Portland we'd be happy to show you around and then we go to the print fairs when the EAB print fair is up and running again we'll be in New York for that excellent well it has been just delightful to be able to chat and learn more about you and and your background and the connection you have to printmaking and and what you're doing so thank you thank you so much for this opportunity it's really it's really great i appreciate it very much i'm honored well that's our show for this week join me again next week when my guest will be dolores desaad Dolores is an etcher, originally from the UK, who now lives and works on Koh Samui, a beautiful island in the Gulf of Thailand. We'll talk about hiking, orca, natural disasters, and the ways in which humans think they're in control and are mistaken. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. See you next week.